John Water George there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons of water. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, to the servants who had drawn the water in Master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves a good wine first. When the people have drunk freely, then the poor. Then the poor. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of the signs Jesus did at Canaan of Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples. They stayed there for a few days. Well, good morning. Uh... It's good to be back preaching here. I think it's been over a month since I was able to preach here at Sulphur Community. And in fact, the last time I preached, we were in Kenya, and I had about six hours of preparation time uh, to get ready for that. And one thing, when you're preaching, which is really cool for me uh, to be able to preach in that kind of setting, because you get to try to contextualize whatever you're it is you're teaching to a new group of people and you're trying to learn their culture and being able to communicate the truth of scripture in their context it was a challenge, it was very fun but it's also you have an interpreter, so as I'm speaking I would say a sentence and then I'd have to stop and let him interpret in Swahili and then we would go back and forth and so that's a challenge because you want to get, you kind of get passionate about what you're teaching but then you have to stop and you kind of lose the emotion and you get back into it so it's good to be back in our context this morning. And so what we're going to do is we're going to continue our study in John's Gospel. Uh, if you've been with us, you know that we started, I guess, about six weeks ago, seven weeks ago, and we're going verse by verse through the whole book, and uh, we are in chapter 2 this morning. So if you will, turn to chapter 2. We're going to pick up in verses 1 through 11. And as you're doing so, I'll remind you briefly, because I haven't done it in about six or seven weeks, the overall purpose, the overall theme of John's Gospel. In chapter 20, verse 30 through 31, John writes, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. It is with this purpose that John writes the things that he does. The events and the, the words that he records are done to show Christ. This is Jesus, the Son of God. And I want you to believe in him because by believing in him, you will have eternal life. And since that is his purpose, when we approach this study, that's our purpose. We're looking for that this morning. And the hope and prayer is that as we, as we study this, we behold the glory of Jesus Christ. And that by beholding it, we are transformed internally, and that manifests itself externally as we reflect Jesus Christ to our neighborhood and to the nations. And so that's where we are this morning. And the additional prayer of that is, is that if there would be anyone among us who is not trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation, that you get to see him in all of his glory as you go along with this study with us. And that by seeing him, you would believe and have eternal life. And so 
so in chapter 1, what John did is he provided his own personal testimony. I want you to see Christ as the Son of God. Let me tell you why I know that. And so he says things like the Word, Jesus, was in the beginning. He was with God and He was God. And that He created everything that was ever created. He is life. He is light. He gave us the right to become children of God and He became flesh and dwelt among us. John also said that He beheld His glory, that He saw it. As a reminder, so that we don't go forward without understanding what that means, what the glory of Christ means, we've defined it. We've defined it as the the manifestation of the attributes of who an individual is. If I'm to glorify myself, I want you to know who I am, and so I try to communicate my attributes, my characteristics, my nature. When we talk about the glory of Christ, He is showing everyone this is who I am. And so John said, I I saw it. I saw who he is. And I'm recording these things so that we, the readers, would see it too. And that when we see it, we would believe in him. Our author, John, also called on additional witnesses in chapter 1. He provided the testimony of John the Baptist, who was the fulfillment of Old, Old Testament prophecy as the forerunner to the Messiah. He also provided the testimony of the first disciples, as Blake shared with us a couple weeks ago. I mean, these guys spent a day with Jesus and were so impressed with him that they declared, this is him. This is the Messiah. And they went out and they told their friends. They told their family, come see him. So as we move into chapter 2 this morning, John's going to continue to build his case. He is defending the deity of Christ. And now he gets into the recording of the actual events and words that Jesus said and did. As we study these words and events, we will see how the people of that day responded. And we should, I would encourage you to ask yourself the question, how am I responding to the revelation of the glory of Christ today? This morning we take a look at the first sign Jesus did to display his identity. He turned water into wine. And before we do, I would like to offer up a a word of caution using an illustration. In 1992, Christmas morning, I was seven years old. And as any seven-year-old, when it's Christmas morning, I wake up at five o'clock in the morning, anxious to open my presents. In particular, that year, there was one gift that I really, really wanted. It was, it was a Nolan Ryan Strike Zone electronic game where you would hang it up on the door. And it came with like three little soft baseballs. And you, I, I was fortunate enough to have a hallway, so we would hang it up on the hallway and you would throw it. And wherever you hit the board, if it was a strike, you would have an umpire electronically yell, strike. And if it was a ball, it would be ball. And then you would simulate like a full game throwing balls at this board. Well, my parents got me that game that morning. And so the first thing I do is I tell my, I tell my dad, do I need to stop walking around? I tell my dad, like, hey, can you hang it up? Can, can we play? So my dad hangs it up on the door, and he plays with me for a little while. We play a game. 
And then, you know, he's an adult, so he's got other things he's got to do. So I get my little brother, Zach, to play with me, and we play for a little while. But then Zach's got his own toys. He got a Game Boy that year. So he was like, I'm going to go play my Game Boy. And so I just played that game for about three hours straight. The good thing about being a seven-year-old is you don't really get muscle fatigue like throwing a ball down the hallway, so I just kept going. Well, after that, my dad asked me, hey, you know, the, the, the wrapping paper's still on the floor. Hey, can you pick that up for me? Easy task, right? So I'm thinking, okay, I can do this quickly. So I go, I run into the living room, I take all the uh, wrapping paper, I put it in the trash can. Now, I've already shared an illustration about two weeks, three weeks ago with you about trash cans and the way I think about trash cans. So if you were here for that, you'll understand my logic. Of course, I filled up the trash can, but I gotta get back and play the game, so I just leave it there. That was my chore. That was my responsibility when, when it's full to take out the trash. So I go and play my game. I throw one pitch. And my dad, knowing that I just put all that wrapping paper in, in the trash can, knowing that it's my responsibility, says, David, can you take out the trash? Now that's a reasonable request of a father to his son, especially when it's his son's responsibility. But to seven-year-old David, that was completely unreasonable. And so I responded with the overly dramatic question, who am I, Cinderella? I'll let your imagination wander and think about how that his response was. I can tell you this, that was the worst Christmas morning of my life. But I say that because what happened is I got caught up in the gift. My attention was all about what I had received. And I completely missed the person behind that gift. See, my mom and dad didn't give me this Nolan Ryan strike zone thing because they were investing in my career as a major league baseball pitcher. They weren't thinking that. I hope not. Because I failed. Uh, they, they also didn't get it because they wanted me to become the best Nolan Ryan strike zone player in the apartment complex that we they also didn't get it so that I would understand every little detail about how that game worked. Electronically, the programming. I didn't need to know all that. They weren't giving me the game for that reason. They gave me that gift that I wanted because they were trying to communicate, express a part of who they were. We love you. And I miss it. And I think what, what happens is a lot of times we start getting into things like this and it's a, a miracle where water goes to wine and we start thinking the questions, well, how did he do it? What are some scientific reasons possibly that one might try to explain this away? And we miss the whole point. And so I'm asking you to commit with me this morning because we're going to see several times through John's gospel where Jesus does something and puts his power on display and people miss it. We'll even see later on in John's Gospel where he does it, and they keep coming back not to know him, but for more signs. Give us another. Give us another. And the Pharisees will even get to a point where they'll say, can you give us one more? And Jesus says, what else do I have to do? I don't need your validation. I don't need to show you another sign. So I'm asking you to commit with me this morning to look past the sign. Use this sign 
I mean, by John actually calls them signs. He doesn't really call them miracles. Because if you look at the word sign, it's the beginning of the word significance. There is something deeper behind the sign that he's doing. And so when Jesus is doing this, let's look at who he is. What is he trying to communicate about his identity? That's why John records the things he does. That's why we should, that's what we should look for. So we commit to doing that. Don't get caught up in conversation later. Well, whose wedding was it? It doesn't matter. If, if God wanted us to know that, he would have put it in his word. Let's look about, let's look at who Christ is. So, the first sign, Jesus turns water into wine. Let's first take a look at the setting in verses 1 through 2. John writes, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. Now this is the third day. This is a reference in time to two days after his encounter with Nathaniel. So he, he encounters Nathaniel. We, we learned a couple weeks ago Nathaniel was very skeptical. I mean, what good can come from Nazareth was one of his questions. Interestingly enough, Nathaniel is actually from Cana. So it would make sense that he would be here with Jesus. We find Jesus in this town, Cana. It's a little bit north of Galilee. I mean, it's in the region of Galilee, a little bit north of Nazareth. That might explain why Jesus was invited. This is a small area. The population is not very dense. It's likely, possibly, that, that Jesus and Mary were actually related to either the bride or the groom. I mean, we know that because Mary was actually serving, it seems like, as, as part of the, this process, as part of the ceremony. She was at least close enough to the, the situation where she was able later on to identify that there was a potential social disaster and then took initiative to try to fix it. There are also theories that, well, you know, we want to spend our time this important. That's the setting. It's a wedding. And one thing we need to know about weddings, interesting, uh, Chase, my, our friends Chase and Taylor here. Uh, a wedding for us is like a ceremony, reception, honeymoon. It's not the case in our culture that we're reading into this morning. The wedding itself took place a year after, well, after a year of this betrothal period in which they were legally committed to one another, but the husband took that year to prepare for his bride. So the husband would go and try to build a house and he'd try to save up some money because the, the groom is responsible for the wedding itself. A lot of brides' fathers would be like, please go back. wouldn't have had much of them. So the groom for this year is preparing to take in his bride. And that's where we are in this wedding ceremony and it typically lasts about a week. It's a week-long celebration. Drinking wine, feasting, dancing. It is a party. But you only have a party if you have food and drink. And so if you were to run out of wine in the middle of a wedding ceremony, in the middle of a wedding celebration, think about this from the groom's point of view. What does that look like to my new father-in-law? 
I can't even provide the wine for our celebration. How am I possibly going to take care of this dog? But then also, this was a very close-knit community. This was a big deal. They're out in this area in Galilee, and so it's like a very rural setting. So when weddings happen and you finally get to take a break from your work for a week and come party, don't run out of water. And that is where we see the son's obedience in verses 3 through 5. John continues, he says, When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. So the poor groom is running out of wine. Now I titled this section, The Son's Obedience, but I am not referring to Jesus' obedience to his mother Mary. I am talking about his obedience to his heavenly father. And I'll go into more detail and expound on that so that you see it too. What we see in his response is Jesus drawing the line when it comes to submission to his mother in earthly obedience and submission to his heavenly father in spiritual obedience. He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? Now this wasn't the first time he did this either. We can read in Luke 2 and find that when Jesus was 12 years old, he stayed behind in Jerusalem. Parents not knowing. They realize that their child is missing. He pulled like a Kevin McAllister home alone thing. And she freaks out. And they go looking for Jesus back in Jerusalem. And after three days, I mean, think about this. For those of you who are mothers and fathers, three days, your 12-year-old son is missing. They find him. You can imagine what Mary's initial words were. She said, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold your father, lowercase f, referring to Joseph, and I have been searching for you in great distress. To which Jesus replied, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Capital F. He's referring to God there. He's making a point that while Joseph is his earthly father figure, his heavenly father takes priority over that. So as Jesus is preparing to launch his ministry in John chapter 2, he does this again to Mary. He's going to communicate this truth. He responds, woman, what does this have to do with me? In the original form, this literally translates, woman, what is this to me and to you? We might think of this as a harsh response, especially when he starts off with woman instead of mother. Now, for whatever reason, somehow it's, it's come into our society where when we initially read that, uh, we might start off and say woman in a very derogatory, condescending way. That's why I actually talked to Josh beforehand when he read it and said, hey, be careful when you read that because that's not what Jesus was doing here. He's not saying, woman, what does this do with you and me? The closest thing that we could possibly have, especially for those of us in the South, would be ma'am. Ma'am. So it's coming across a little bit softer than we might initially read. 
But while it's not a, a completely negative thing, it's not exactly intimate either. I mean, Jesus, this was his mother. And at this point, he doesn't respond, Mother, what does this have to do with you and me? It says, he draws the line and says, Woman, what are you asking me, the Son of God, to do? This does not concern you. You don't understand. I'm on a divinely appointed time schedule. My hour has not yet come. Jesus continually had to fight against this idea that his family kind of had like an inside track in the holiness with him. go to Luke chapter 11 verses 27 through 28 and Jesus had to refute the assumption that Mary had a spiritual advantage as his mother. It says as he said these things the woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Jesus is drawing the line here and saying not my family. It's those who have faith. Also recall the moment from Mark chapter 3, verse 32 to 34, when people called out to Jesus to tell him, hey, your mother and your brothers are outside. They're looking for you. And what does Jesus say? Who are my mother and my brothers? And then he looks at those around him who have been sitting, listening, and listening intently to his words, and he says, these are my mother and my brothers. Jesus is saying, it is not about your family ties to me that I'm concerned with. Those who follow me find salvation. Those who follow me find my righteousness. I should add here that this is good news for us today. I mean, some of us come from jacked up families. Some of us come from maybe some good families, but you don't really see Godly character displayed. For some of us, the world might look at us and say, you're not good enough because you don't come from the right type of family. Praise be to God and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that, that He doesn't concern Himself with that. That it doesn't matter about your family history or even your personal history. None of that hinders you from coming and following Him. That's good news for me. Jesus Christ has given those of us who believe in Him and follow Him the right, the ability to become part of His family. Where we find a perfect Father. So I would say at this point, if you haven't believed in Christ yet, please know that whatever your history is, whether it be your family, whether it be your personal history, none of that hinders you from following Jesus Christ. I want you to know that. In fact, Christ loved you so much that He knew all of that existed and He still said, I'm giving my life for you. I'm giving my life so that you don't have to deal with the consequences of all that. 
just follow me. Trust in me. Believe in me. So Mary says, Jesus, son, they have no more wine. I know you can do something about it. To which Jesus responds, what are you woman telling me, son of God, to do? And here we're introduced to this thing that we can follow throughout the rest of John about Jesus' hour. He says, my hour has not yet come. And so this is just one more thing to tuck away in your back pocket as you're reading through John with us. Look for this. Because here Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. Ask yourself, okay, where are we now in the divine timeline of God? When he's referring to this hour, he's talking about his death on the cross. And he's saying, my hour has not yet come. But if you go to John chapter 4, this progresses a little bit. And Jesus says, my hour is coming. And then you go to John 12, and he says, my hour has come. And so as we study this, pay attention to this. Where are, where are we on this timeline? At this point, his hour has not yet come. It is not time for Christ to put himself on public display and reveal his identity to everyone. To which Mary responds with directions to the servants. They, I, I was thinking about this when I was studying. Why do you think Mary went to Jesus with this? Did she think it was time for him? Is that why Jesus said, why are you coming to me with this? Right now is not the time. Did she know about this divine, divinely appointed time schedule? Or is it possible that sometimes we kind of forget Mary was his mother? And she found herself pregnant as a virgin. She had angels come to her and tell her, hey, you're going to bear this child and this is who he's going to be. And after she gave birth, she got these weird visitors from all over the place. Shepherds, angels, the wise men. And in Luke it says, she stored up these things in her heart. And she pondered them. Now, I don't know if maybe she was just trying to avoid a family disaster. I mean, it would have been something yesterday. We, we went to a couple of parties. It would have been chaos, right? If we would have showed up and we started eating and all of a sudden, I mean, can you imagine, uh, can you imagine what Dee Dee might have done at Phil's birthday party? All of a sudden we had no more food. Can you imagine what Miss Linda would have done if we would have run out of food at a shower? I know there was a baby shower. I mean, apparently there was a lot of partying going on yesterday. Tomorrow's 4th of July. You have your family over and you run out of pork chops or you run out of hamburgers. What's going to happen? Maybe Mary was just going to, hey, Jesus, I know you can do something about this. Hey. Because she knows who he is. She hasn't forgotten. So Mary responds and says, to the servants, hey, do whatever he says. She realizes what Jesus has just said. I am no longer a part of this. This whole thing, Jesus clearly has communicated to me, this is not my concern. And so I'm just going to tell you servants, if he tells you to do anything, you do it. And she goes back. And then Jesus performs a miracle. Like that's confusing, right? Jesus says, woman, what does this have to do with you and me? 
my hour has not yet come, and then he goes and says, all right, let's turn water into wine. This was a sign, but it was not public. And I think you'll see that as we continue. Let's look at the sign in John chapter 2, verses 6 through 10. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. So, remember, you're committed to me, one. Let's look at the sign as a means of communication, right? Let's not get caught up in what he did. Why did he do it? Jesus picked six stone water jars. Those water jars were used for purification for the Jews. So this is where they would wash their hands before they ate. This is where they would wash the utensils before they ate because they did not want to take in anything because their belief was if I eat something that's not clean, I become unclean. I think it's significant that Jesus picked those vessels to perform this miracle with. There's certainly something significant in the fact that by transforming water that was used for purification, Jesus was nullifying the old form of purification. And then by transforming that water into wine, he is pointing to his blood. That would be the, the, the means of purification for all of man. Jesus told his, the servants to, to fill the jars with water. And so the servants, having already been given orders by Mary, do whatever he told them to do. And then John says they filled it to the brim. Now, I thought this was pretty interesting. I'm glad John put this. Because some of the uh, scientific explanations to try to explain this away, it was very common in their day to mix water with wine, to dilute it. Because really the water, for the most part, was unclean. They couldn't really drink it. So they had wine to drink. But of course, if you drink too much wine, now you're disobeying the law and you're becoming drunk. And so they would try to dilute it. And some, some say it was like two to three, two parts uh, wine, three parts water. So maybe that's what they did. John says they filled it to the brim. It was completely full. To the point where you couldn't add anything else into it. And then Jesus says, okay, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. The master of the feast would be the person that's responsible for like the catering. Maybe like, I know when, at our wedding we had Maryland. We went to did Maryland for our reception. We actually had somebody who walked us in and said, okay, this is where everybody is. This is what's happened so far. This is the order of events. This is how we're going to do everything. To be that person. And so he tells them, hey, take it to this master of the feast. Notice there's no command of Jesus saying, water, turn into wine. He didn't, it doesn't say that he touched it and prayed over it to turn it into wine. 
it doesn't say where he did some Aramaic chant or abracadabra and it turns into wine. It's like almost literally like he just thought it. Hey, fill it up with water. Alright, I'll take it to him. Then can you imagine what the, the servants might have been thinking at that point? They just filled 30 gallons, six of them, 30 gallon jars full of water. And Jesus says, alright, good. Now take some out of there and go bring it to the uh, master of the feast of taste. The looks that might have been going back and forth between them, I do know where this water came from. But they do it. They're obedient. And they take it to the master of the feast. The master of the feast drinks the wine and not knowing where that wine had come from. Goes to the bridegroom, thinking that the bridegroom is the one that's prepared, that's provided this wine. We get confirmation from the dialogue between them that it was in fact wine. Because the master of the feast talks about how traditionally you would serve the best wine first. Because after they've been drinking for a little while, their taste buds are kind of, they've escaped them. They might be a little bit tipsy. And so they can't really tell the difference between quality wine and box wine. But Jesus is wine. This, can you imagine what that wine must have tasted like? This is probably the best wine this guy has ever tasted. In my personal study, I found some parallels to some Old Testament uh, description, and it might be worth some further study. If you think about Moses, what was the first miracle that God did through him? He provided water. And so in the first miracle of Christ, he is turning water into wine. He is providing a, a beverage for someone to drink. And so it could be possible where now he's becoming the greater Moses. If you look in 2 Kings 3, there's another incident involving lack of water. And it goes to the prophet Elisha. And Elisha responds in the exact same words that Jesus responded to his mother. He says to the kings who at that point were not following God's law. What is this between you and me? What do I have to do with you? But then, just like Jesus, he actually prepares them for the provision of water. And when this water comes and the sun hits it, the description there is that it looked like blood. It looked red. And so if that's the parallel that, that God was intending to do through his son Jesus, what he's saying here is he's like Elisha and he's even better. Because he did it on his own. He did it on his own power. For sure, what Jesus does here is he displays his deity in the fact that he creates something. He takes something and creates something else, which is just so having to fit in with John's previous description in John chapter 1. There has been nothing created that has been created without him. He is the created, creative being. I mean, as a human... I can think all I want. But this is not turning into wine. But as God, just have the thought, and all of a sudden this turns into wine. Because He is a creator. 
is God. But why did he do it? Not so that the party would continue. Not so that the groom would save face and not be embarrassed. Although those were some consequences of this. Jesus did it because he's God and he wanted someone to know. Just not everybody. Let's look at the purpose and the result of the sign. In verse 11, John says, This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Jesus did this first sign and he manifested his glory. Do you remember the definition of glory? He revealed who he is. He put on display his characteristics, his attributes in this sign. He is the ruler of the physical world. The transformation of water into wine shows that he can take something and make it something else. But he didn't do it so that everyone would see him. Think about who the audience is here at this event. Surely Mary would have realized that Jesus had done something. Whenever the wine shows up and the party continues for another few days, my son must have taken care of his business. Who else knows? The servants. The servants knew where the wine had come from, but the master of the feast didn't. Can you imagine the expression the groom had whenever all of a sudden it's the best tasting wine he's ever had and it just showed up? I'm going to go with it. They think I provided it. That's awesome. But the groom didn't know. The bride didn't know. No one else attending the wedding knew except for who? Disciples. It is highly likely that that was his intended audience that day. And see, his disciples, unlike seven-year-old me, they didn't get caught up in the, the actual sign, the actual miracle that Jesus said before. They didn't miss out on what was being communicated. Instead, they saw Jesus for who he was, and it says they believed in him. It makes sense that, that Jesus would do something like this to increase their faith in Him. Because they're getting ready to embark on a very difficult journey. When you think about what's going on, I mean, in a matter of a week, Jesus has shown up. John the Baptist has said, hey, follow Him. Some guys have started following Him. He's called a few others. And they are leaving everything behind. The comfort of their families their jobs, their whole life as they knew it, and they're following this guy. It makes sense that Jesus, in preparation for that, would say, this is who I am. Watch this. Water, water. To his disciples. This was not his public ministry yet. But for the ones that were following him, hey, this is why you should believe in me. And they saw it, they beheld his glory, they believed. Now let's bring this home. Let's look at some implications for us. What is God doing right now that would increase your faith in him if you 
just open your eyes to see. You who have spiritual eyes, see. What is he doing? Now, I'm not talking about signs where you're looking for a sign that would justify what you already plan on doing. You're just looking for something to support you. And, oh, I had a sign one time. God spoke to me through this sign, so I'm going to follow through. What I'm talking about is what, what do you see God doing where he is transforming things so that you might see him and know him? I'm asking you to consider the ways in which God is doing transformational work right in front of you. And you might be missing it. In our study this morning, we saw that Christ took a situation that wasn't going so well, redeemed it as an opportunity for him to glorify himself. Do you find yourself in a situation right now that doesn't seem like it's going that well? but that it would serve as an opportunity for, for God to say, hey, I'm going to work in that. In fact, you're in that situation so that I might put myself on this plate because I desire for you to know me. He sent his son Jesus to, to take on flesh and put himself on this plate. The disciples beheld his glory. Glory is of the only son from the Father. And they believed in him. And they believed in him to the point where they gave up everything and followed him. To which we should ask the question, are we doing that? Are we willing to give up everything and follow him? Is he worth it to us? Because to disciples, they saw it, they trusted in him, they believed in him, they said, that is worth more than all of this other stuff in my life. I believe that God is doing something right now in us, the Sulphur Community Church. I think what I'm seeing is transformation happening from within and manifesting itself externally. And it's weird because it's, it's almost like it's, it's contagious. I feel like it's kind of spreading. So if you stick around here long enough, you might catch it. But what I'm seeing is, I'm seeing individuals, I'm seeing couples, I'm seeing families who are saying, what do you want to be? I'm willing to follow. Show me where you want me to go. Show me what I need to give up. And that internal transformation is starting to come out. So we're starting to see transformation not only happen internally, but it's starting to manifest itself to where it's happening in our church body, in our prayers that will continue, rippling through our community, and to the ends of the earth. And I'm praying that that would continue, and that we would not quench the Holy Spirit in the work that He's doing. I would also point out to anyone who has not fully believed in Jesus Christ and sur surrendered everything, the, the history that you have, the sin that you have, that He wants you to know Him. He wants you to know Him. And He already knows you. It doesn't matter where you come from, what your history is. 
what your family's like, none of that prevents you from coming to Christ. He loved you so much that he died for you so that if you would just put your faith in him and follow him and trust in him over everything else and everyone else, you would find eternal life and you would become a part of his family. We didn't read today that the servants believed in it. The servants experienced the same transformational power that the disciples experienced. The disciples believed we don't see that description of the servants. Don't be like that. Don't be one who sees the power of God on display and does not believe. But instead walks away wondering, huh, I wonder, I wonder how that happened. Trust in Christ today. Surrender your life to follow Him. He's worth it. Let's pray.